we've been doing this little study on um, some acts of worship. And I'm calling this study, Worship is a Verb. And uh, we've talked a little bit about prayer. I want to continue that talk a little bit today in talking about what happens when you pray. And I'm going to use, as part of this, um, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, which is, and I think um, Hebrews 4, 15, is absolutely pivotal to understanding uh, New Testament theology. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that today. Now, in 1962, there was a book that was written called The Diffusion of Innovations. Are you, do you tend to be kind of techie? Do you like all the newest things? I'm way behind that curve. But um, here's what it said in this book. Uh, the rates, it talked about the rates at which new ideas and technologies spread. At one extreme of the scale are innovators, and he says that's about 2.5% of the people. Uh, there's another group that he describes as early adopters, another 13.5%. That's people who um, kind of have to keep up with and have all the latest technology. Uh, and then, um, the, and those are readily embraced change. At the other end of the scale are what's known as the laggards, about 16%. I fit that one. I've got the T-shirt for that one. Um, you know, I still don't know. Um, I really don't know if I've got an iPhone 4, 5, or I, I don't know, you know. And, and do you, are you the one that has to have the, the 6.1? I mean, whatever. Anyways, I, I'm just not in that camp. And uh, um, so I'm a laggard, I'm sure. Um, I still talk on a brick phone. No, I don't do that. But um, now in the New Testament, um, we see both extremes of those who, um, uh, in, in, phone in phone technology parlance, um, Louise loves these discussions when we talk about cell phones, but, but in, in phone technology parlance, uh, the New Testament had some folks who um, were on the cutting edge of the latest change. And by the way, a lot of those were Galileans. That's why Jesus hung out there so much. And on the other hand, we had a lot of folks who just weren't willing to change. You know, they're the people who are going to, they're still looking to buy a, um, they don't even want to buy a push button phone. They still want a rotary phone. Okay. Um, and so it set up this kind of amazing spread. Um, there are some, even in the New Testament, after embracing the change, recognizing Jesus as who he said he was, eventually abandoned what they had previously accepted. And the book of Hebrews kind of addresses that. It, it's a warning, really. The book is a lot of a warning for that. Uh, Jewish, written to Jewish Christians who were kind of wavering. They had accepted this new teaching. They accepted Jesus as Messiah. And then many of them began to think, you know, it'd be a lot easier just to go back to being Jewish. Okay, that's kind of what the book is addressing. So central to the message of this little book of Hebrews is the fact that while the Jewish system was good, it had to be superseded. And the whole message uh, centers around how Jesus Christ is better and, uh, than, than what they had before. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today from uh, Hebrews 4. Now I want to address just for a minute this name, and first of all, I'll pronounce it for you, and it can be pronounced two different ways from what I understand. It can either be pronounced Melchizedek or Melchizedek. 
I've heard it both ways. I have not looked this week at a, uh, at a pronouncing dictionary on the subject, but you can, uh, you can say it either way, Melchizedek or Melchizedek, so there, there it is. So if we have to read it today, if you, if you choose to read, you'll, at least you can pronounce that. And uh, Melchizedek was a mysterious figure in the Old Testament that shows up during the days of Abraham. My guess is you might even study that in your uh, Anne Graham Lott study. Um, Melchizedek comes on the scene, uh, mysteriously really, and blesses Abraham after a battle that he has where he defeats some uh, Palestinian kings. And... um, and Melchizedek blesses him, actually feeds his troops. And in return, Abraham kind of humbles himself before Melchizedek and gives him a tithe of the spoils of war. So that sets up this kind of mysterious idea about he's a king, but he's also serving as a priest. And uh, anyway, you, you hear about him uh, in the Old Testament only in a couple of spots in um, um, there in Genesis and also in some, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And um, uh, you read about that encounter with, with Abraham. Um, but the idea here is he was a king and a priest and uh, kind of served as a priest in this case. And Abraham acknowledged him as that. The problem with that in Hebrew theology is the priestly line came under the from the tribe of Levi through Aaron, okay? Well, there's a little problem with that. Levi was um, the like great-great-grandson or great-grandson of Abraham. I mean, it, it was, I probably didn't get that genealogy right, but Levi hadn't been born yet. Certainly not Aaron. So how did this man become a priest? And it became to kind of be the thought that his priesthood superseded that of the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. So the writer of Hebrews begins to kind of capitalize on that and use that in his dossier for who Jesus really was. One of the things that you and I kind of recognize is that, um, um, was this a Church of God song? Um, praise him, praise him, I think was the name of the song. Anyway, there was a line in there that called Jesus prophet and priest and king. That may be a Church of God only song, but um, um, from, from way back there, never heard it? Crown him, crown him, prophet and priest and king. I just remember that term, okay. But, but that idea comes kind of from this line of thinking that Jesus was not just a prophet, Predicting things to come and things about his own life, including his own death, burial, and resurrection. But he was a, he was a king. Presented as king of kings and lord of lords. Even in the book of Revelation after he was gone. And he serves now as our high priest. We're going to kind of deal with that. Uh, Bob, you're back there. Got your teal colored shirt on. So I can see you. He does that so I can see him. Um, would you read... From chapter 4, verse 14, 15, and 16, which are really, really important verses in the New Testament. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in 
Okay, now, can you see how this is really important? The Hebrews writer, and by the way, we don't know who that is. If somebody tells you they know who wrote the book of Hebrews, you need to go to another Sunday school class, okay? <laughs> I, nobody knows. It's kind of a God only knows deal. And, and in fact, that made, um, that made it kind of hard for the book of Hebrews to make it into the New Testament canon because uh, apostolic authorship was a big deal. Uh, but things like this, were so crucial to the understanding of who Jesus was that they couldn't, they couldn't leave it out. Isn't it wonderful that we have a book here that just couldn't, it was so good it couldn't be left out. And that's kind of how it began, began, to, be uh, began to be included. Uh, now, so uh, this kind of what Bob read a minute ago is kind of a setup. Um, um, Hebrews has been set up in chapter 2 and 3. So let's go to 2, and it's 17, not 7. Let's go to 17. I miss, I miss uh, my, my thumbs got in the way there. Okay? Here's some great teaching on who Jesus is and his role in your life. Somebody read 2.17. And that, that's really interesting, I think. Uh, would you mind to go ahead then and go to 3.1? Just skip a couple of verses ahead and read 3.1. It's going to say a similar thing. Thank you, Wayne. Now, here's the story. You ever kind of salt your conversation with an idea that you don't have time to pursue right now, but you want to give a hint at it and you're going to pursue it later, you're going to explain it later. That's, what the, that's the word that goes in your blank there. The author has mentioned Jesus as high priest a couple of times. Now he's going to explain it in chapter four. Um, it's, you know, um, I say to Doyle, Doyle, when you get me that new car for Christmas, um, you know, and then I go right on, right? And then 30 minutes later I'll say, boy, I just can't wait till you get me that new car for Christmas and I go right on. Okay? Now, he's, he is salting the conversation here with a very, very important truth, but he doesn't pursue it. He just says it. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest. Now, in four, he's going to explain what all that means. I, I think this is kind of wonderful. Now, uh, so literally, when, when those who had grown up in the Jewish system heard that term, Jesus, our great high priest, they would have said, as they read that, they would have initially said, he's a what? Okay, He's our what? So by four, he's going to explain what that is. Okay, it's kind of important. Now, um, the issue here is that in verse 14, is that we're going to need to know this in order to hang on firmly to our faith. They're going to certainly need it in the day of of uh, temptation and testing that they were in. We're going to need this truth to know. Um, let us hold fast our confession. Now that idea there, our confession could also be, uh, it may be translated in your Bibles, faith, hold on to our faith. It literally means our convictions or our beliefs. Now I might illustrate it in this way. Um, 
uh, we're in the middle of, you know, if you're on Facebook or, you know, looking at one of the news shows, you hear constant talk about who the next president's going to be and all that stuff. Well, after a, a general election, uh, there's lots of talk that ensues uh, when one party kind of loses control. There's, there's a lot of talk, typically, uh, we need to either get back in touch uh, with, with our base or move to the political center. You'll read all that stuff. Um, uh, others on uh, the losing side might say, well, we lost precisely, they may, they may say, we got to move to the middle. And another side might say, no, the reason we lost is because we moved too far to the middle. And so we got to go back to our base. You, you've heard that stuff. Um, uh, we've alienated the party's base. The party's future should be entrusted anew to the party's base, which will hold firmly to core principles. That's kind of the idea here. Okay. Now, whenever Christian influence is on the decline, some are going to say, that we've got to get more cultural. See that the common theme here between this and politics? Uh, we need to kind of adjust to cultural trends. Others are going to assert just the opposite. They're going to say that Christian influence has declined precisely because the church has compromised itself to, to cultural trends. And we've lost the blessing of God in the process. So what you and I have got to come to terms with is being, and I love what this church says, about being culturally relevant while being biblically strong, safe. That, that's really true. And so the idea here is that I can change my method, but I better never compromise the message. It's really thoroughly important. And so the Hebrews writer here says in verse 14, you've got to hold on to the faith you've professed. Now, couple of things we can recognize here is that, um, is that this Jewish system has been superseded um, in, in every way. Two things about the high priesthood that he's going to deal with is it supersedes this old session, this old, um, old way of doing things. And then second, it, it's going to recognize here and, and teach that... Um, um, that what has come before is only a copy of what was really designed. There's a Platonic idea here. Um, any of you read any Plato last week? I didn't either, okay. But I remember Dr. Wade B. Jakeway, when I was 19, 20 years old, telling me about types and shadows, and it really fits into this Hebrews discussion because he talked about... Uh, that Plato's idea is that this chair was only a faint copy of the eternal chairness somewhere in heaven. And the table that you're sitting around is only a faint copy, a dim copy of the uh, universal tableness in heaven. Okay, I can hear him saying it still. All right. The idea here is that there is, there is a system. There is a priest who... Moses presented only a copy of the real thing in heaven. A system, a faith, that Judaism was only a faint copy of the real thing. I dare be careful that my Christianity doesn't become a faint copy of the real thing. Have you ever, um, have you ever copied a, got an on a, you 
put something you wanted to photocopy, and so you put put it on the photocopier, and you copied it, and then you copied a copy of the copy, and then you copied a copy, you copied the copy, you copy, and by the, it gets real fuzzy by the end. What the Hebrews writer is presenting all the way through this book is that Jesus is the real thing. He's the genuine article. He's the number one, the prototype. We don't need to look any further. Okay, now look at verse 15. This verse of scripture couldn't be more important. He's already said here that, that this savior exceeds, this priest exceeds the, any Jewish one. And now he's ascended to heaven. By the way, I got to think a little bit about this because as he explains this and says that Jesus, our great high priest, is in heaven with the Father, you've just got to catch this because this is going to come into play when we apply this in about 15 minutes. If Jesus is in heaven where he claimed to return to when he ascended, then he's got the ear of the Father. He's standing He's seated right beside him. One of the issues you've got to come to terms with is when you pray, and can I say this? When you fail, the Lord Jesus leans over and intercedes for you to the Heavenly Father. That's a pretty wonderful idea. Lord, he really didn't mean to say that. He's better than that. The Holy Spirit and I are working on this. Give him some time. <laughs> I, I really believe that's the scenario. Not in some, so many banal terms, no. But you kind of get the point. Okay, 4.15, we've got to read again because it's so important. Would somebody read it? I uh, was on a drive yesterday and um, uh, doing some errands, and I had the, the XM radio on, the Sirius radio on, and I uh, heard a song I hadn't heard in a long time. Sarah McLaughlin singing, um, is it The Eyes of an Angel, or The Eyes of the Angel? It's from a movie. It's one of the title songs from a movie called City of Angels, which, by the way, the soundtrack in that, of that movie was really, really good. Goo Goo Dolls were in it. And, okay, never mind. Uh, I digress, okay? Uh, but, but Nicolas Cage was kind of the main character, and he played an angel who fell in love with a surgeon and wanted to become human so he could stay with her. Now, isn't it interesting that sometimes people might think of Jesus as in those kind of terms, that Jesus came to the earth as an angel and just decided to live among us. What you need to know is that Jesus is clearly here in this teaching, not an angel. He's human, but he's different from you and me. How is he different? Sinless. Now, let's go to a couple of places here, okay? Let's go to, somebody read John 1.14. Would somebody get that one? Thank you, Cindy. And John, I saw your hand. Would you go to just back to 2.9 in Hebrews? And we're going to read that, okay, as well. Now, let's see how Jesus differs from you and me. What does John 1.14 say? Yeah, John. 
1.14. John 1.14. Pretty, pretty. That's all right, Cindy, you're good. The Word, the Word of the Heavenly Father took on flesh. Now, you, got, well, you and I got to deal with this idea that He became completely human. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. All right? Now, John, would you go back to chapter 2 in Hebrews and read verse 9? clear here that he's not an angel. In fact, the book of Hebrews um, kind of has some interesting verbiage on that in chapter 2. But he's clearly not an angel. He's a man. He becomes a man. But this man is God in the flesh. This glory that, that he possesses here. So, when the Hebrews writer is making the case for him being our great high priest. He, he kind of enters into this um, discussion, the idea that Jesus was fully human, fully divine. He's made the case in the chapter 1 that he's fully divine. He's here making the case in verse 15 that he's fully human, yet something unique is about him, isn't it? Without sin. The perfect man, the prototype man, he was fully human, I want to use this term and I want you to think about it for a minute, fully human yet unstained by the human experience. My guess is, I know this to be true but I'll say I guess it, okay? None of us in this room can say that. That I've been unstained by the human experience. We've all sinned, haven't we? And fallen short of the glory of God that was described in John 1.14 that Cindy read about a minute ago. But he comes along, God in the flesh, fully human yet fully divine, and lives this life that you and I are trying to live perfectly. And it sets him up to be different and to be available for us in a different way. Now, let's go back to verse 16 because it's going to finish the idea. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us. We have one that's human. Was human every way like we are and yet without sin. Therefore, verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, what i got to deal with here, if I'm needing help, I've got to look for two things. You ready? Got to look for somebody who knows me and kind of cares about me. Okay? That's kind of important that not only they know me, but they care about me. There may be people that know me, but they couldn't give a rip what happens to me. So, I, but, so if I've got a problem, I'm going to come to one of you because I know you know me and you like me. You care about me. Second, though, because... There are lots of situations where I may want to help you, but I can't, even though I know you and care about you. So the second part is also true, and it's, it's vitally important, and that is that that person be in a position to help. Okay? 
in some kind of a position to help. Now, what Jesus has described here is, is having both of those important qualities. Now, here's the idea. If we don't receive mercy and grace in our hour of need, why is that? According to verse 16. You haven't asked for it. You haven't approached the throne of grace boldly. Now, does this mean I can be cocky before God? Oh, heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. By the way, if you ever see him for who he really is, you'll approach the throne of grace with confidence because of him, but you'll never be cocky. There's an implied humility here. So, if I haven't received mercy and grace in my time of need, could it be because I haven't asked? What, you, what I think we've got to understand before we move on is that Jesus as our advocate in heaven is a key element of you and I understanding what prayer is all about. That I never pray, um, um, and, and sometimes we'll say this, maybe it was said earlier today, uh, boy, thank you for your prayers because they really did the, made the difference. The truth is, our prayers are ineffectual without the one at the right hand of the Father who intercedes with them on our behalf. Uh, this is a really a key important, uh, key important point of us understanding New Testament theology. Jesus is our advocate. He prays for us as we pray. I envision it in my mind as I'm making some feeble attempt to go after something, looking for grace and mercy in my time of need. And I envision the Lord Jesus seated beside the Heavenly Father saying, Lord, what he means is this. <laughs> I know he's asking you for this, but what he really needs is this. Okay, now, let's, let's go on. I want you to go over to chapter 5. We're going to read a few of these verses. Would somebody read like the first four verses of chapter five? Just a page over. Thank you. Now, he begins to talk about the system that Jesus inherited, the system that uh, the Jewish people, it was still in place even when the book of Hebrews was being written. Um, and it talks about uh, what the high priest that was elected every year, what the high priest did. What he did was a couple of things. He would offer, um, he would receive and offer for the people uh, gifts. So, in other words, if you had an offering, if you had a tithe to pay, etc., you'd give it to the priest and he'd offer it to God. Okay. Now, um, so part of that it was kind of ritualistic. I, I admit that. But the idea was 
that um, the high priest represents you to God, offers your gifts, and offers also your sacrifice. You can read about this in the Old Testament uh, in lots of different places. Often that was a massive sacrifice. Hundreds, thousands of, of animal sacrifices offered for the forgiveness of sin. I want you to turn with me just real quickly over in my Bible. It's one page. I want you to look at chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. See the next phrase? They never did take away sins. It was getting us ready for this moment in history. So how effective was what the priest did? Not very effective. Time after time, sacrifice after sacrifice until Jesus came along. Now, one of the roles of the priest that's talked about in verse 2 is that they're to deal with the people gently. Uh, they're to deal with the people gently. I, I, I like that description of a priest, of somebody who goes to the Father for you. Okay? It's to deal with the people gently, not to be um, heavy-handed or rough. Uh, don't you find it interesting that the only description Jesus gives of his own personal character, I think, in the New Testament is found in, in, in uh, Matthew 11, where he describes himself as being gentle and humble. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, actually 29, I think. Gently. He deals with you gently. Now, uh, the problem here is set up. Is in verse 3, it begins to talk about what the priest had to do. I've made some references to it in Leviticus 9, Leviticus 16. The priest had to, before he could offer your sacrifice, he had to offer one for himself. Okay? He had to offer his own personal sacrifice before he could offer yours. Does that set up kind of a problem in your mind? It kind of does with me. But what if there was like, Maybe in the Old Testament, there was occasionally a super high priest, you know, that could offer, and his only job was to kind of hang out all year and then offer a priest once a year, offer the sacrifice for the high priest. That's all he did. And it wasn't set up that way, was it? The problem with that is, who's going to offer the high priest? Who's going to offer the sacrifice for the super high priest? Because he's full of failure too. So what happens is, who's going to offer that sacrifice without sin? The Hebrews writer says, I'm going to tell you who it is. And he continues to describe Jesus. Verse 4, he describes him as being appointed by God. This wasn't a result of an election. This wasn't, uh, Jesus wasn't even from the tribe of Levi. Wasn't certainly from the tribe of Aaron. Um, uh, it, interesting, by the time of Jesus, you meet guys like Annas and Caiaphas who have been elected to that position. They weren't from the appropriate tribes. In fact, there's, there's some evidence from generations before Annas and Caiaphas that the high priesthood had been bought and paid for and that was just kind of continued and they paid the Romans for that position. The Hebrews writer says, your high priest wasn't elected. He didn't buy it. He was appointed by God alone himself. He didn't come to this position. In verse 5 and 6 it talks about he didn't come to this position as a result of human ambition. 
So, in verse 7, it begins to teach us why Jesus, why the Father, when Jesus walked the planet, heard Jesus' prayers. Look at it. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his what? Reverence. The word reverence is the best word. NIV, I think, may use the word obedience. It's reverent submission. Reverent submission. That's a great term for us to kind of unpack here. Um, reverent submission. You, you, you can use in verse 8, it also talks about obedience. Jesus had to learn by obey, uh, obeying, even though suffering, he learns reverent submission. Now, it's important. Look at verse 9. I'm going to back up to verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And having been made perfect, he came to all those who obey him, the source uh, to obey him, to all those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, it is important that we see Jesus in verse 9 as not only our high priest, but as also the perfect sacrifice. Isn't that an interesting irony? He's not only the priest, but he's the sacrifice being offered. He offers himself. He's in a unique position in all the humans who have ever walked the planet because he was the God-man, fully human, yet fully divine. So we see him here as the perfect sacrifice. And his, and it, he invokes this idea of this mysterious guy from the Old Testament, Melchizedek. He says he is the perfect high priest as well. Now, I want to apply this before we go. Can I rely on Jesus to be faithful. Can I rely on him to be faithful to intercede on my behalf? In 1 John 1, 9, it says that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, right? Well, I want, I want to use a, a kind of an oblique scripture. I want you to go with me to Luke 22 as we close. Peter is going through a particular trial and he went through a lot of them. Luke 22, and I'm going to start with verse 31 in just a minute. Peter was this impetuous uh, yet strong person that ended up being weak often. And that Jesus knew that he was going to have all kinds of trials and tests of his own faith. You and I can read about him up through uh, the 12th chapter of Acts. All right? And there were others that aren't recorded for us in Scripture. Jesus, in a really candid moment with Peter, says something to him about how his life is going to be tested. Would you look at verse 20, um, 21? And I'm, I'm going to go to Luke 22, and I'm going to start with verse 31. Sorry. Here we go. Simon, Simon, and that's Peter's given name. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, by the way, do you catch who's in charge here? <laughs> I so love this. When I'm under a test or a trial, even a physical one, who's in charge? The Lord Jesus. God is in charge. He gives Satan permission to do those things. Look at verse 32. But I have prayed for you. Catch that? How would it be to know if you're standing there in the flesh with Jesus that he has prayed for you? 
But I have prayed for you, he says, that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Here's what I want you to know. The Lord Jesus, in your toughest trial today, tomorrow, next week, next year, in your toughest time, what you've got to envision, if you can get this in your mind's eye, the Lord Jesus is praying for you. What is happening when you're on trial? Jesus is praying for you. Oh, you've got to catch that. That ought to give you incredible strength. And it ought to bolster your faith as this passage does here, those who are struggling in the first century. What happens when I'm on trial? Jesus is praying for me. Where? At the right hand of the Father. Lord, do you hear him? Do you see what he's going through? You know we love him. I know he's not perfect. But I'm nuts about him. Take care of him. Your faith doesn't need to fail. There's no other way that you and I are going to see this thing through called life. And I am bolstered in my faith and in my courage, in the knowledge that whatever I go through, He is praying for me in those moments. Can you live in that? I can. All right? Read Daniel 1 next week. Let's have some fun talking about, actually we're going to talk about fasting, which I could use more of. Okay, so, all right? See you then.